Hey, so we're, we're, our theme for this weekend, um, I was going to say if you were here last night, clearly you were here last night. The theme for the weekend is we're thinking about awkwardness and especially that idea of why is it that the things that we need to talk about the most, we tend to talk about the least. It's one of the saddest realities of life. Why is that? And, and what I want to do the rest of our weekend is really talk about um, some parts of my own story that have been awkward, that have been hard to talk about. But one of the things I'm really trying to convince you of before I get going, we're going to talk about depression and anxiety this morning. But before I get going this morning, what I, really this whole weekend, if I could say there's one thing I'm trying to convince you of, it's what I said last night over and over, that God loves you and meets you where you are, not where you think you should be, not where you've been pretending to be. And as I was thinking about um, ways that, how can I illustrate that? One of the things I keep thinking about, so I know it's not cool to like have a favorite commercial you know, I mean, anytime you're like, have you seen that commercial, you feel a little bit lame inside. And yet, uh, if you've seen these commercials, they're, I think they're really funny, but it's the whole um, direct TV versus cable, um, those commercials. So you have like Peyton Manning, Eli Manning, and you know, the whole point of the commercial is, hi, I'm direct TV Peyton Manning. And then you have like a way less cool or awkward, skinny, like the latest one, skinny leg or high voice, Eli Manning or, um, or Peyton Manning. And part of what I want to say to you is, God, God loves cable you. He, you do direct TV, you, we're all doing it this weekend. Jesus sees and loves cable you. And what I want to do this morning is think about, okay, for those of us who, some of us, cable us is we are depressed and we are anxious and we don't know how to talk about it. And so what I want to do this morning, I simply want to ask a question is if, if you come this morning and you, you find yourself maybe in the midst of a bout of depression, or maybe you don't even have words, you just feel sad and a, a or find yourself crying and taking a lot of baths. One of the ways you know you're depressed is you love baths, and we'll talk more about this later. Or you find yourself on the what I would say the flip side of, of depression, which is simply anxiety. Um, college, you know, especially if you're a freshman, college can be this time where you've moved, you're lonely, you're trying to make new friends, and some of us who don't really know how, maybe some of you, if you were like me, d- don't know how to do that. You grew up in a school where you literally you went from kindergarten to s- senior year with the same people, and you've never really had to make friends. And so you find yourself in college, and maybe you're on the the depression side of it where you're really sad and and, and lonely, but maybe you're just on the anxiety side of it where you find this restlessness in you. And really this morning, we're going to kind of treat them as two sides of the same coin. But the question I'm asking is, how does the Lord meet those of us who find ourselves in that place? Now, if you're here and you don't find yourself in that place, this is what I want you to listen to. Whether you know it or not, you have friends who right now that are, or maybe you have a parent that is. Or maybe you have a sibling that is. So there are two ways to listen to this morning. One is, this is me. And the other, and the other is, I know someone, I love someone who this is them. And what can I learn about them this morning? So to do that, we're going to look at Psalm 42. Uh, psalm 42 is, is a gift of a, of a, a psalm. And I want to look at it this morning. So if you have a Bible or if you have a phone, turn with me to Psalm 42. And I'm going to read it for us this morning. Here's what the psalmist writes. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. You see that 
he's writing this most likely from exile. He's missing home in Jerusalem. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation in my God. My soul is cast down within me, therefore I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mazar. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? You ever felt that way? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me, while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Let's pray together, and then I want to talk about what I want to talk about this morning. Let's pray first. Father, again, we thank you that you give us your word because you love us, because you want us to know you, because you want us to be in relationship with you. And Father, some of us come this morning and we are, we find ourselves, whether we can admit it, whether we know how to articulate it or not, we find ourselves in sad and lonely and depressed and anxious places. And Lord, I pray that you would come and show us that you really are uh, the God who says about yourself that you do not break the bruised reed, that you are God who is patient and gentle with us in ways that we are often, we are so hard on ourselves, and yet, Lord, you are so not that toward us. Father, would you uh, show us your character? Would you show us uh, the beauty of your character, um, the glory of your character this morning as we think about these things together? We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So the first time that I ever got deeply, deeply depressed was seventh grade, middle school. And to kind of give you the backstory, I can't tell you the full story, but to give you the backstory, my parents were going through this incredibly ugly divorce we had just found out that my dad, um, who was this, you know, standing in the, you know, just great guy, we all thought, had nursed this cocaine addiction that had kind of blossomed into a crack cocaine addiction, and he had just been found out. And not only did he kind of, he farmed with my grandfather, he kind of broke the farm through using all the farm money to buy crack, but he also broke our family because he ended up leaving my mom for the woman who essentially introduced him to crack. And so my family was just in this crazy, crazy place, as you can imagine, and, and I didn't know what to do with it. I, I'd grown up in the church. You know, my, my mom, I think it seemed to be a time in my mom's life where I think she really became a Christian. But all I knew is that was two things. I was incredibly uh, angry and confused, but I was also deeply, deeply sad. Where Literally all I wanted to do all the time was come home from school, which I didn't want to go to, and I wanted to eat more Cinnamon Toast Crunch than, you, than is physically, humanly possible, sleep, hours upon hours upon hours, and play video games. I had a Sega Genesis, which still is my favorite system because it had the best sports games, um, Bill Walsh College Football. You don't even know what I'm talking about right now, but if you did, you would understand. But there's a sense in which this is my first place in my life where I didn't know how to articulate it, but I was absolutely crushed with, I would just say, depression. And when you think about like that place, we don't know what to do with it. And I remember vividly, my mom had no idea what to do with it. Like, I remember the, the most vivid moment in that whole time is I remember my mom, she had started going to counseling, 
And she really wanted me. She knew I was depressed, but she didn't know what to do with me. And she really wanted me to start going to see this Christian counselor with her. And I remember she came into my room one day. She'd ask me and ask me and ask me. And I was like, no, no, no. And I remember one time she came into my room. She said, we're going. We are get in the car with me. We are going to camp. We are going to see my counselor. And I remember uh, reaching in my closet for an Easton baseball bat, and I held it up to my mom, and I said, "I'm not going anywhere." And it was this moment where my mom obviously burst into tears. She she left the room crying. I burst into tears. I got back in my bed, and there was a sense in which she didn't know what to do with me. And I think that's still the sense I get when I think about, especially those of us in the church, is we don't know what to do with depression, we don't know what to do with anxiety, because we don't know what to do with the complexity of suffering and sadness. This came home to me, you know, if you followed it last year when Robin Williams, Robin Williams, one of my favorite comics, I mean, who doesn't love Robin Williams? But the, the just the, devast, the devastating tragedy that was his death, but I remember so many Christians wrote blogs about Robin Williams, and I remember reading the blogs and thinking, some of the blogs were, were at worst just offensive in the things that they said, the ways that they treated depression, especially just so simplistically. But even at their best, sometimes some of the blogs that I read, just we don't know what to do with it. We, we, when we come to thinking about what to do with those of us who are anxious and depressed, we, we don't know how to treat something so complex with gentleness, with patience, and not by, by oversimplifying things. And this is why I love Psalm 42. Psalm 42 is a gift to the church because it says to those of us who find ourselves in these places where depression and anxiety is our story, it says to us something beautiful. It says Christians get anxious and depressed too, and God does not reject them for doing so. And if, there, if that's you this morning, this is the one thing I want you to hear, is that you, the, the way that God meets you in your anxiety and depression is with absolute patience, gentleness, in this gentle hope and love. But it's a gift to us, but it's also a gift because it reminds us that there's a sense in which there's some principles here that kind of teach us or help us know what to even do with our anxiety and depression. So really, what I want to do is just three things as we look at this psalm together this morning. Three things, three kind of points I want to make uh, looking at Psalm 42. Here's the first. I want to talk about how it feels. The second thing I want to do is talk about where it comes from. And then the third thing I want to do is, is just simply talk about what do we do with it. So how it feels, where it comes from, and what do we do with it. That's kind of where we're going this morning. The first thing with me for just a little bit about how it feels. And like any good depressed person, the psalmist has this intense dramatic flair for obsessive detail because he gives us seven these seven vivid details about what it feels, how it feels. Here's what he says. Look at it with me if you have it open. For one, he says it feels like dying of thirst. Number two, he says it feels like eating at a buffet of tears, which is like the saddest image to me because I love buffets. Three, it says he says it feels like, that's in verse three, uh, but number three, the third vivid image, in verses three and verse ten, he says it feels like having your inner critic and cynic on a constant loop, constantly feeling accused, constantly being... Uh, Harden yourself, constantly hearing nothing but criticism and cynicism inside your own head. Four, the fourth image, he says in verse four, it feels like being emptied out like a leftover solo cup at a party. If you ever clean up a party, just just being absolutely empty. The fifth image he gives, it feels like this nostalgia 
but for sad things. Like I remember one of the places my junior year of high school where I realized there's something going on with me. As I remember, my friends were all at parties. This is a Friday night. I'm a junior in high school. I should be out with my friends. I remember I was at home watching VH1 because there was this Counting Crows concert. And Counting Crows for me, if you've never listened to them, is like the perfect breakup sadness music. And I was kind of going through a breakup. And I remember watching this concert and just like crying. Like I just couldn't stop crying. And I thought to myself, Sammy, hey man, hey buddy, what's going on here? Like you love, but like for my depressed people here, you have this love for sad things. And I feel you. The sixth image he gives is it feels like drowning in an ocean. Like we read that part where you're awake. You know, sometimes we sing these songs, your breakers and your waves uh, flow over me. And we're like, oh, we're drowning in grace. That's not what the psalmist is saying. saying like you're killing me. God, what are you doing? Oh, you are crushing me. He's not like singing a, you know, like a, like a hill song, like whoop. He's like, I, you are crushing me right now. What are you doing with me? And then the last one he gives is my favorite one because it's the most graphic one. Verse 10, he says it feels like a fatal wound in his bones. How do you heal a wound in your bones? And he's saying this is what it feels like to be depressed. If we could put all these images into one phrase, here's what he's saying. He's saying, I feel absolutely hopeless. I feel hopeless about myself. I feel hopeless about my friends. I feel hopeless about my community. I feel hopeless about life. And even if he's being he is being honest, thank the Lord, he says, I feel hopeless about God himself. And that's what it feels like when you're depressed and anxious. It feels like you absolutely have no hope in this world. I love the way I've been working my way for the past, let's be honest, year and a half through David Foster Wallace's Infinite Just. And the, there's sections that come out that are just beautiful. And there's this one section that gets, he describes depression better through this character than I've ever heard it described before. If you don't know if Dave Foster Wallace is, he's this author that was supposed to be, or he was the most, you know, renowned author of, of our uh, 21st century. Uh, and so, but he's got this character, Kate Gompert in Infinite Jest, who comes to the doctor because she's tried to kill herself again. And she's trying to describe to this relatively young doctor why she wants to kill herself. And here's what she says to him. I'm just going to read it. It's a little bit long, but it's worth it. So listen, follow with, follow with me. Here's what she says to him, Kate. She says, no matter what I do, it gets worse and worse. Is there more and more? This filter drops down and the feeling makes the fear of the feeling way worse. And after a couple of weeks, it's there all the time, the feeling. And I'm totally inside it. I'm in it. And everything has to pass through it to get in. And I don't want to smoke pot. And I don't want to work or go out or read or watch or either do anything or not do anything. I don't want anything except for the feeling to go away, but it doesn't. Part of the feeling is being like willing to do anything to make it go away. Understand that anything. Do you understand? And here's what she says that I love. It's not wanting to hurt myself. It's wanting not to hurt. It's not wanting to hurt myself. It's wanting not to hurt. And for those of you who have been in, in, in such in the darkness of depression to the point where you've wanted to kill yourself, that's exactly when I read that I thought, she she gets it. He gets it. The closest I ever came to that place in my own story of wanting to kill myself was junior year of college. And I just met my now wife. Her name's Alyssa. And, but we were dating at the time. And I was the guy that when I dated, I had one girlfriend before her. I was the obsessive, kind of controlling, jealous boyfriend. Like I, didn't, I had so many feelings. Like I had all the feelings. And I didn't know what to do with them. And the way it typically came out in relationship was I was just, I was just possessive, jealous, controlling, so I remember this was junior year. We've just started dating. She's uh, it's to the point where we're, we're pretty serious. 
she's going to go with my family to the beach. And I remember she came and stayed at my house, and she was staying with my sister. And I remember this night vividly because uh, I got so jealous because what was happening was my now wife, Alyssa, was hanging out with my sister while I was in my room kind of pouting. And they're just like laughing and having this great time. And all I can think is, I hate myself, I hate this, I hate myself, to the point where I want to end this. And it sounds crazy, but if you've been there, the feeling is, is what Kate Gompert just said. Like, I knew what I was thinking and feeling was crazy. But I was so tired of thinking and feeling it. And so I wrote a note, I put it in my bed, I got in my car, and I just drove. And I actually drove, this is in Sumter, South Carolina, I drove to the local hospital, parked my car, didn't, didn't really have a plan, but just was feeling everything deeply and wanted to end it, didn't, drove back to my house, and as I drove back, there were cop cars there. My mom and my stepdad were, were crying, my sister and, my, and Alyssa were crying. And it was the, a really, very real moment for me where it really was a cry for help. It was me not knowing how to say, I need help. And this moment really brought all that. I mean, this was the moment that brought all that very clearly into the light where I needed some professional help. But if you've ever been to that place or if you've ever been close to that place, that's what you genuinely feel hopeless. And you're so tired of feeling that way that you really do think the best way out is just to end, to snuff out your life early. And can I just say, like, part of part of this morning, again, all I'm trying to do in these sermons is, is start conversations. And can I just plead with you, if that's you, whether you find yourself in that way from the depression side of things or the anxiety of things, side of things, would you please, would you please risk a conversation with your intern, with your campus minister, and just say, like, I promise you they can handle it. I promise you, REF is, a, we say all the time, it's a safe place where they can know that about you. And then even if it's a small way, relate to that part of you. But would you please risk that conversation even today? But that's part of how it feels. But then we have to ask a question. So, okay, but where in the world does this whole thing come from? Like, why do we get anxious and depressed? And this is where Psalm 42, I think, goes a little deeper and and. and it starts to address that question. And I think the way that I've always thought about it in my own life is kind of the chicken and the egg thing. Like I've always, especially in my college years, I thought about it like this. Like, am I making bad choices because I'm depressed or anxious? Or am I depressed and anxious because I'm making some pretty terrible choices? And I think the answer is yes. That there's a way in which those two things happen together. There's a way in which those two things support each other and this is where I love Psalm 42 because I think it shows us that there are actually three different roots where our anxiety and depression kind of come from. Three different places that, that I think can be causes or triggers of our anxiety and depression. So look at them with me just for a second. The first that we can simply call it, there's this emotional component to it. I already mentioned when I read it, the psalmist is writing this from a place of exile, which means something profound. It means he's lost his entire community. He's living in this place that is foreign He's living in this place where he doesn't yet have friends. He's living in this place that has just been, is just hard. And for a lot of us, that's college. Like, if you are the person who is so excited to be a college, like, I, I'm so glad you're here. Like, I love that that's your story. But I know from my own experience, there's some of you that are like, you hate it. Like, I was the weird guy who knew when I graduated high school, like, like, what, what's happening? Like, I don't want this to end. Like, I love, I was the guy that loved high school. Because, like, I was known, I was loved. 
And I got to college, and both of those things went away. And I didn't, I didn't have the, you know, because I was a deep introvert, like I was not the confident guy that could make friends. I roomed with my best friend freshman year, and that was a disaster. Like, like I'm not even, this is an exaggeration, I would come home from class, and he would be playing the guitar just like crying. <laughs> true, I mean, true story. Like just, I mean, I mean like, like hard crying. Not like Bonnie Bear crying, but like hard crying. Like, like I want to kill myself crying. And I, you know, and so it was just disaster. So there's this emotional component. He's saying like, I am lonely. I have lost my friends and I am depressed. But the second thing that he shows us is there's this physical component. If you look at it, that's what he says the thing both about. If you notice it, these unhealthy, disturbed patterns of both sleeping and eating. If you see it, he's not eating in the ways that he should. And this is not, I'm not getting ready to do the Jesus juke for like whole foods right now. So don't just chill. I'm a junk food guy. But also his sleeping is off. He's not getting the sleep he, he needs. For some of us, that means we're getting, we're, we're sleeping too much. But there's a sleep, there's a sense in which his eating and his sleeping patterns are totally off. Um, and you know, it's interesting. This whole idea of self-care is such an important piece of this. I don't know if you follow um, Lena Dunham on Twitter, but there was this moment a year ago where she she talks pretty openly about her own. Lena Dunham's the girl that wrote Girls, but she talks pretty openly about her own struggle with depression. And, and there she has this moment about a year ago where she did a selfie of herself exercising, and she said, "I don't want to be this person, but can I just say I've started regularly exercising for the last six months, and I feel." the best I've ever felt in terms of my anxiety and depression. And she nuanced it because most people, most of us who feel it are at this point want to strangle her. But then she did the thing where she said, listen, I'm not trying to be the person that says this is going to solve all your problems. But what I am saying is this is a part of it. And if we look at this psalm, I think the psalmist would agree. And then the third thing and the most obvious thing is there's a spiritual component. There's a sense in which this psalmist is struggling to be in speaking terms with God which is why he has to take himself in hand and begin to preach the gospel and remind himself of what is true about God, what is true about him. And there's a sense in which that's a huge part of what helps lift him, what helps get him to a place where, where he's a little bit lifted out of his anxiety and depression. But here's the point. The point is simply this, is we are tempted always to root depression and anxiety in one of these things instead of all of these things. Here's my own story with that. So when I first started to go to see a counselor, because depression is is not left me. Like that's been a, a there are seasons and cycles of my life where it's it's okay, and there are seasons and cycles of my life where it's hard. When I was in Statesboro, Georgia, uh, did RUF there for five years, but there was a season, I think my third year there, where I was uh, really in a season of depression. And I remember going to see uh, a counselor, and we went to Ruby Tuesdays, and I remember vividly sitting across. He had gotten the salad bar. I think I ordered the burger, which I was already feeling guilt and shame about. I remember him saying to me very vividly, he said, listen, here's the deal with depression. Depression is always rooted in, I think, depression is always rooted in sin, and that's hopeful to me because that means when I feel depressed, all I need to do is repent. And I remember, like, wanting to reach across that Ruby Tuesday table and just, like, just choke him out. Just lay him down in Ruby Tuesdays. I might have been depressed because we were eating at Ruby, T- I mean, Ruby Tuesdays. <laughs> My state's prayer people, you, you get what I'm saying. Or sometimes our, the food choices are not superb. But there's a sense in which he was trying to root depression and anxiety in one thing. And this psalm won't let you do that. It just won't. And I hope for some of you that's freeing. 
there's a real sense in which this psalm treats us as human beings as absolutely complex. That we're not just one thing. Yes, absolutely, like, the spiritual part of us is, like, we have to deal with that. But there's also, God, God gave us bodies. You know, C.S. Lewis loves to say, if you read much of him, that, you know, right now, Jesus Christ has a body sitting at the right hand of God that God takes seriously. Um, you know, this is why, so I think the best image that we have, there's this book called uh, The Marriage Plot, this guy, Jeffrey Eugenides, and he gives this great image where he says, depression is like a bruise. It's like a bruise. His character is talking about the difference between addiction and depression. She says, depression is like a bruise in your mind. And I've always loved that image because sometimes, if you think about bruises, sometimes you genuinely know how a bruise got there, and sometimes you genuinely don't. You're still responsible to sort of to treat it with tenderness, to bring yourself to, to help the, the bruise heal. Absolutely, you're responsible for that. But there's a sense in which some of you need to hear, like, some of you are anxious and depressed and you don't know why. And I want to say to you this morning, that's okay. And I want you to hear this through no fault of your own. Some of you anxious, are anxious and depressed and you've got some things you need to look at. It is through some things, some sin patterns, some idols, absolutely. But some of you are here and you're anxious and depressed and there's a sense in which it's not because of anything you've done. It's part of how you're wired. It's part of what it means to be a human and a broken, a broken human in a broken world. And I want that to free you. And this is the third thing I want to ask, is what do we do about it? So I think the key, like any good Coldplay song, the, th- the key is in the refrain. If you look at the refrain of verse 5 and 11, um, I think if we look at those, those refrains, we can say there are two things that he's saying. On the one end, he's talking about misplaced hope. And in the other place, he's saying, Learn, what does it mean to learn to hope in God? So first, think about misplaced hope for a second. Part of what he's saying is, I've misplaced my hope. I think part of, for the psalmist, how that worked, is he put his hope in a place. He put his hope in a people. He put his hope maybe even in a spiritual record. He talks about leading the throngs to, to praise God. He was the youth group of youth group people. Instead of putting his hope in God. Listen, sometimes we do this thing where we think we're putting our hope in God, but what we're really doing is we're putting our hope in what God can do for us. And Psalm 42 is saying, as long as you put your hope in a person, as long as you put your hope in your GPA, as long as you put your hope in, you know, your life going to plan, as, as long as you put your hope in this, this spiritual record where you, you are somebody that's loved and accepted, you're going to get disappointed if not depressed. But if you begin to put your hope in God, yes, you're going to get disappointed. Yes, you're going to get depressed. But putting your hope in God is the safest place that you could put your hope. Putting your hope in God, that's why he says, if you look at it, uh, he says, he calls God my salvation, my rock, and my God. What is he? Why is he saying that? Here's what he's saying. Here's what he's learning. He's saying, God, even though my life is not what it should be, even though my life is not what I want it to be, even though what I'm feeling is not what I think I should be feeling or what I want to be feeling, Even though I am in a dark place, even though I am more anxious and depressed than I ever knew that I could possibly get, here's what he's saying. He's saying, even though my anxiety and my depression might not go away, God, I know that you're not going anywhere. And I know that you love me, and I know that you're for me, and I know that you do things in me that I can't understand. I love, uh, recently been working through the letters of Flannery O'Connor. She's got this great line where she says, a God you could understand would be less than yourself. And part of what the psalmist is saying, God, sometimes you do things in me I do not understand, and yet I know that you are God. I know that you are for me. I know that you love me, Jesus. Help me put my hope 
in you. This is why every year I get to do this this uh, seminar, summer conference, uh, just own anxiety and depression. And I've done it for the last three or four years. And every year it's emotional for me because I'm forced to kind of think about my own story, especially here. And every year it's like the Lord, as I, do, as I work through it, it's like every year he meets me in this place where he says, Hemi, I just want you to remember, even though your anxiety and your depression has not gone away, I haven't gone anywhere. I'm with you. What I say about myself in Isaiah 42, that I do not break the bruised reed, is true. And that's who I am to you. Haven't I been that to you? And like every year I'm like reduced to tears just thinking about it. So what do we do with it? I just want to close like this. So especially if you're here and you're like, okay, this sounds great, but this is not my story at all. I want to think about just very quickly a couple of ways that we might love those you know, can I speak for those of us who are anxious and depressed to those of those of us in the room who are not and just say maybe give a couple of guidelines to make maybe the ways that would be helpful um, in terms of what we need. Just six quick tips and I'll move through them quickly. Here's number one. Keep the pen and the shame grenade. We already feel those of us who are anxious and depressed already feel enough shame. It's not that we don't know that what we should do it's that we can't find the strength to do it. It's like the scene in Goodwill Hunting. Where Robin Williams pins Matt Damon, it's not your fault, it's not your fault, it's not your fault. If you're depressed and anxious, you, you get that version, but instead you're pinned to the wall and all you hear is it's your fault, it's your fault, it's your fault. So we need you just to know that we know that, that, that there's something going on and keep the pin in the shame grenade. Two, don't be, sim- don't be simplistic. Help us simplify life, yes, but please don't treat it simplistically. Please know that these things are rooted not just in one thing. The answer isn't always repent. The answer isn't always go see the doctor. The answer isn't always... Hop in medicine, the answer isn't always, you know, go see a counselor. There's a sense in which all three of those are going to be part of it. But don't treat just just one as the answer. I think sometimes we are uncomfortable, like we're like Job's counselors, where God comes and rebukes him at the end and says, listen, I want you to, I, all I wanted you to do is sit with Job in silence. Because sometimes life is hard and we don't have all the answers. Three, take the physical seriously. Like sometimes what your friend right now needs is a, just you to take them to like, I was going to say Golden Corral. Please don't take them there. <laughs> that would be terrible. <laughs> but take them to get a steak somewhere. Like, I don't know where your steak place is. Or if you want to get really spiritual, just bake them two pans of Sister Schubert rolls and just bring them over. Like, if you did that to me when I was depressed, I would love you forever. We'd be friends forever. Four, embrace awkward silence with them. There's this Nick Hornby book. <laughs> this is one of my, ta- I have a couple tattoo ideas that I will never probably do because I don't have courage. But one is, uh, there's this Nick Hornby book about books, and it's simply called More Baths, Less Talking. I'm like, that's the one I want. Just right, right here, maybe. I don't know where. <laughs> Sorry, that's uncomfortable. Um, but there's a sense of what your, your depressed friends don't need, your anxious friends don't need you to, like, give them the lecture. Just embrace awkward silence with them and just sit with them. Five, help them take themselves less seriously. Um, I love the story out of Martin Luther's life. Martin Luther struggled with depression, and his wife, when he would he would get in these bouts where he would sleep for days, and his wife would do this thing, and it sounds mean, but I think it's really funny, where she would dress herself like she was going to a funeral, and uh, he would eventually kind of wake from from the fog, and she would be cleaning the room, and he would say, whose funeral are you going to? And she would say, God's, because of the way you're acting, so hopeless he must be dead. Which I think, like, maybe they could have used some counseling, Maybe, but 
there's a sense in which, like, I'll never forget, one of my best friends in the world is absolutely super depressed, and I remember him going to see a pastor about it for the first time, and he thought the pastor, PCA pastor, was going to say, you need to pray more, you need to read the Bible more, you need to, you know, sing more praise songs. And instead he said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to buy the complete collection of, of Seinfeld, and I want you to watch two episodes with your roommates before bed every night. Because sometimes, if you listen closely enough to laughter, you can hear the echoes of hope. And say, so Help your depressed and anxious friends take themselves less seriously. Laugh with them. And the last one, I'll close with this. Uh, give them grace by giving them space. Like sometimes they need to be watching the eighth episode of New Girl and you're just like around. And they don't need you to, to sit them down and say, let's talk about. Sometimes they don't need to talk about it. But sometimes they need to know that this is the freedom that Jesus gives us. That he's gentle, he's far more gentle with us than we are toward ourselves. And he's far more patient with us than we are toward ourselves. And there's a way in friendship of doing that. We are not always trying to force the issue that can be really huge. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we thank you that you are a God who promises not to break the bruised reed or quench the smoking flax. We thank you that you move toward us in patience and gentleness. We thank you, Lord, that even that we admit uh, we don't fully understand why it is that we get anxious and depressed. We thank you that, Lord, that you um, you are with us, you are for us. I pray that you would help us to put our hope in you even this morning, to trust you with the hard and dark places of our own lives, and to begin talking about it in ways that are healing and hopeful. I pray these things, Lord Christ, in your name. Amen.